0: Welcome to the July 12th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 and the sermon is entitled The Danger of Partial Commitment delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. We're going to take another step forward in our study through the great, beautiful gospel of John. I want you to take your Bible, turn with me, open it, put it in your lap. John chapter 2. Those of you streaming with us, open your Bible, put it in your lap, put it on your table. Uh, John chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. As the disciple John writes this eyewitness biography of the life of Jesus, I want you to remember this primary point that is going throughout this entire series through the gospel of John, John the disciple writes this gospel with one primary reason, the point of the book. It is in John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 where he says, I'm giving you this testimony that you might believe in the Savior Jesus Christ. This is John's witnessing tool. John is an old man. He is the the disciple out of the 12 who lived the longest. Most of the disciples died as young men, as martyrs, giving their life for the faith. God allowed John to live to an old age, and this is one of the last acts of his life, to write the gospel of John as a witnessing tool. He leaves this world, leaving this witnessing tool behind. So today, we are going to pick up Scripture in John chapter 2, verse 18. So have your Bible open there. Now last week, we studied in the first part of John chapter 2, Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember, he cleansed it of farmers and sellers and animals and money changers. The grounds of God's holy place at the time of Passover was a collection of all kinds of people from all over the world. And so they were meeting there on this highest of holy days for the religion of the Jews, the faith of the Jews. And last week we studied about Jesus coming to the temple grounds and what he sees is an ancient Walmart. What he sees is a place that is buying and selling and people are raising their voices and calling in the those who are there uh, that they might profit off of changing their money from foreign currency to local currency that they might sell them an animal that they could then take into the temple grounds for sacrifice so there was a problem that had surfaced at that point though And that is that while there was lots of sales and lots of money changing going on, the temple grounds had changed its focus from what it was supposed to be. People were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiness of the Passover. And yet the temple grounds had become a Walmart. It had become a place of selling and buying and changing money. The gentle Jesus coming into town with his disciples saw all of this ruckus on the temple grounds and the, the fact that his father's house of prayer had become a place of sales and a place of money changing. And the gentle Jesus, with his newly called disciples, created a, a, a moment of chaos at the temple grounds, at this outer court of the Gentiles, where all of this buying and selling is taking place. He lashed together a homemade whip And he charges in the midst of the outer court of the Gentiles and he chases off the farmers and the sellers and he chases out the animals and get these doves and the cages out of here. He turns over the money changers' tables and he dumps the money on the ground. We see a moment of Jesus' holy righteousness and indignation and anger that God's house had been turned from a house of prayer to a house of sales. And Jesus, the Christ, who never sinned, stood up for the holy name of his Father. Amen? Jesus righteously, rightly stood up for the holy name of his Father. And he created some chaos on the temple grounds, but it needed to be done, and the grounds needed to be cleansed so people would come back to why they truly were there, and that was to worship and serve a risen Lord, a God, who loved them it was quite a scene and my guess is when all of that happens is people are still people just like they were then we are now when something like that happens all the news ripples through the community that something has really gone on at the temple and all of us need to get there to see what's happening My guess is, as all of that news travels quickly, all the swarms of Jerusalem come in to see what's happening on the temple grounds. All the people are coming to see the ruckus that's taken place. But it was because Jesus was filled with a holy anger and righteousness to reclaim that which belonged to his Father. There is a place for holy anger at the temple here. And ladies and gentlemen, 2,000 years later, there is still a place for righteous anger, for standing up for the goodness of God and the righteousness of God. There is still a place and a need for God's people to rise up and take a stand when things are wrong. There's still a need. There's still the niche. There's still the opportunity that we have that we can stand up for that which is right in the face of that which is wrong. You know, I'm almost in disbelief that our nation came to a grinding halt when the COVID-19 deaths crossed the 100,000 mark across our nation. And I am sorry. I'm sorry for the loss. I'm sorry for the families who have experienced loss from this pandemic. In fact, I got a message just yesterday, a young lady, a little younger than me, we grew up together in the youth group at Linden Heights Baptist Church over in the valley. And she put out the message that she had lost her grandmother to this flu just yesterday. I'm sorry for the families who have experienced that loss and for those who are in the hospital right now. But an entire nation allows somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 babies to die every day to abortion. Day in, day out, year after year. 3,000 babies die a day to abortion. And so that means every 33 days, we're losing 100,000 lives year in and year out. Every 33 days. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our country When we think about that, there's something wrong when we realize that federal law says if you destroy an eagle egg, it is a $5,000 fine and one year in jail to destroy an eagle egg. But to take a life of a baby is absolutely permissible. Something's wrong with that. And there's a place for us to stand up in the face of something like that. Prayer has been lost from school. God's Word has been removed from the courthouse. When it comes to forming the law of our land, God's Word is not connected to that anymore because we've gotten so wise we don't need Him anymore. How sad that is. Church, we cannot be silent in this day. We cannot just give in and give up. You know, the fancy word is acquiesce. We cannot give in without a whimper. When we see all of this taking place around us, Jesus stood up when he came to those temple grounds and saw the holiness of his Father slapped in the face. And there's a point at which we, too, need to stand up when our God is slapped in the face. And we see it happening over and over again. I believe that the pulpit cannot be silenced in this moment. Now, And I also can tell you I believe that in coming days the pulpit is going to be affected by the law of our country. And I believe the day is coming when we preach the absolute truth of the Word of God, and we will be fined for doing it. We may be jailed for doing it, but come what may, the the pulpit cannot be silenced when it comes to the Word of God and the truth of God as He gives it to us here. Well, with that being said, in the aftermath of what we see in Jesus' actions at the temple here, cleansing the temple grounds, The Jewish religious leaders approach him and they're asking, What have you just done? What have you just done with this whip running through our crowds and driving out the farmers and the animals and the money changers? By what authority are you acting? And that's where we're picking up today. Look at John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. That's our stretch of scripture for the day. John 2, go to verse 18. Hear these words from John's gospel. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Keep your Bible open. We'll go a little further than this. The religious leaders are upset, angry at this disruption on the holy grounds of the temple and this their biggest day, the day of Passover, when throngs of people from all over the world have gathered there and all of a sudden this disruption and this chaos breaks out. And so they ask Jesus, by what authority do you have the right to come onto the temple grounds and do such a thing? How could you act this way? And Jesus answered them. And he says this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, now remember that these religious men, these leaders of the Jewish faith, were guardians of the temple. They were guardians of this holiest place of the Jewish religion. The temple is God's holy meeting place. So they ask, what do you mean destroy this temple? You'll raise it up in three days. It took 46 years to build this temple. What gives you the right to say, first of all, that you would destroy it? And then how could you be so audacious as to say you could rebuild it in three days? That which took 46 years to put in this site. Well, I want you to take note here that the religious leaders are getting harder and harder toward Jesus. While this is early on in his three-year ministry, already their hearts are getting hard toward him. Already they're beginning to think about, we need to get rid of this guy. He's affecting what we're doing too much. And, of course, his message about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days is not impressing them at all. It really inflames them even more to anger. But look again at verse 21. It's a very, very short, brief little verse. But it's one that you need to circle. 221 says, but he spake of the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about that earthly building. He wasn't talking about that building that was constructed of stone standing on the grounds. I would have loved to have seen Jesus' body language when he made that statement about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days. I can assure you this, he didn't point to that temple standing over there. Maybe he laid his hand over his heart, I don't know. But he was talking about the temple of his own body. The fact that that body of his was going to be destroyed one day. Jesus knew that moment that these same men to whom he was talking would be key men in destroying his life. They would be the ones who would be going through the crowd, stirring them up, saying, Call out, crucify him, crucify him. Same men. And so when he says, destroy this body, he was talking exactly directly to them because they would be in charge when the moment came. And I love the way John interjects a a verse here. Remember that John is a newly called disciple standing here. He'd seen the love of Christ in these early days. And I think that he and the other disciples who were newly called just stood in this wide-eyed disbelief of what they saw of Jesus charging through the temple grounds, swinging this whip, driving out the farmers and the animals, and turning over the tables. They just could hardly take in what they saw happening there but then they heard what jesus said destroy my destroy this temple and i will raise it up in three days three years later as they these disciples went through the horror of the cross and on that sunday morning the third day they were beginning to understand he's risen he's risen from the dead And they remembered this moment. Oh, yeah. Jesus, three years ago, said on those temple grounds, you're going to destroy this temple. He was talking about himself. Raise it up in three days. Resurrection. And I just love the way John interjects that verse here. that says, three years later, it came to our minds, and we understood what he said. I love that. Well, we move on to the last three verses of chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. As we close out chapter 2 with these verses, listen to verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when, that's a very important word, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. I don't know if you catch right now that these are some very heavy verses I'm going to address right now. But let me ask you this before I start. Do you want to hear the truth? I'm going to tell you the truth of what these verses say. And they're hard-hitting in their message to us. Do you remember at the end of John's gospel, he writes this, the very last sentence. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Here's the last sentence of John's gospel. It's in chapter 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. What is John saying? He's saying as he closes his gospel, I have given you just a little bit of what Jesus did. If we wrote down everything that Jesus did, if we recorded every miracle that Jesus brought forth, the world could not contain all the books that would be created in his three-year ministry. So John says there are so many miracles of Jesus that we have no account of. There are a myriad of things that Jesus did that we won't know What he did completely until we get to heaven. And here's a statement of that. Look again at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Jesus did many miracles while he's here in Jerusalem. And people saw these acts of God. They're not recorded for us to know what all the miracles are. We simply know that John makes note that during these days, Jesus does many, many miracles for people. Now, before we move any farther, let me ask you this. Why did Jesus perform miracles in the first place? The miracles are a statement of God's power. The healings are the statement of God's authority Over all things, even diseases of the body. The miracles are a statement of God's control and God's compassion in all things. But all the miracles are acts of God through Jesus to point to something greater. Now listen, this is very important. Don't miss this. The miracles of Jesus, physical miracles of Jesus, healing people, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, strength in crippled legs, all of the physical miracles of Jesus are pointing to something greater. Jesus is saying this, I have the power and the authority to heal the diseases and the needs of the body, but it points to something greater. I can heal your heart. I can forgive your sin. Look beyond the miracles and see what I can do to give you salvation and grace and life and blessing. Look beyond the miracles and see that I can heal you on the inside. That's why Jesus did miracles. The outward miracle was proof that Jesus could inwardly heal the heart and forgive sin and give eternal life. But in this passage, Jesus tells us here through John that people misused the miracles Again, I'm going to read you verse 23. It's a very important verse. Listen to it one more time. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. People believed in Jesus kind of as a glorified magician. They believed that he could do mighty things, but their belief stopped there. He was a miracle bringer, a miracle worker. But Jesus' miracles were not leading them to Jesus the Savior. Does that make sense? The miracles had not been used in the right way by these people who are seeing them to lead them to the Savior who could heal the heart. They believed because they saw the miracles, and that's as far as their belief went. There's something special about him because he can perform miracles. But it didn't lead them to him as Savior. They believed, but only to a point. They recognized Jesus, but they did not fully commit to Jesus. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. So Scripture says when people will not fully commit to Jesus in total surrender, look at verse 24. When people won't fully commit to Jesus in full surrender, verse 24 says, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Jesus did not commit himself unto them. So that's how Jesus responds to superficial, partial belief. Here's how Jesus responds. Look, look at 24, 25. Now let's read it, these two verses together. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So Scripture says when people will not fully commit to Jesus in total surrender to him as Savior, Jesus will not then in turn commit himself to them. The Lord knows what's in the heart. The Lord knows partial commitment. The Lord knows full surrender. The Lord knows the depth of sin we have, and the Lord knows where we need to be forgiven and how we need to be forgiven. I'm sure you remember Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't turn there, but write this reference down. I used it last week, as a matter of fact. It's Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Sermon on the Mount Jesus says this, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That's a preacher behind the pulpit, ladies and gentlemen. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, Scripture informs and Scripture inf- supports itself. Don't ever just pull out one verse and stand on one verse. Sometimes those proof texts are very wrong. But Scripture always informs itself and surrounds itself and supports itself. And in the Sermon on the Mount, here's a prime example of what Jesus says. We tie these verses of what Jesus said about Depart from me. I never knew you. You did many good things. You did many things that were worthy in the world, and the the world lifted you up, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Tie them to what Jesus is saying here in John's gospel, and it's basically this. Listen. When Jesus said he would not commit himself to them, one day, according to God's word, every person is going to give account to God. One day, every living soul, one by one, will stand before God Almighty. Someone might say, well, that's going to take a lot of time. God's got all the time in the universe. But everyone will stand before Him. And we will give account of ourselves. And when we stand before the living Lord Jesus Christ... As we see him revealed in the book of Revelation, he will not be the suffering servant anymore. He will not be wearing peasant's clothing. He certainly will not be mounted to a cross. He will be the resurrected Lord in bright and shining and powerful clothing as the final judge of eternity. And many are going to say to him, now listen, two passages of Scripture informing one another, many are going to say to Him, Lord, I sat in church. I was committed. I sat in church every Sunday, heard hundreds of sermons. I did good, even mighty things. I looked good in my moral life. I looked good. I had good friendships. I was kind to people. I shared with people. I helped people. I lived a committed life. And according to what I see in Scripture, this is not not something I boiled up in my own head. This is what Scripture says. Jesus, the judge, is going to look at them and say, you committed to sit in church. And you committed to listen to some sermons. And you committed to try to do good. And you committed to some outward acts of kindness. You committed to work in the church even. Serving on committees and chairing things and taking care of things. You committed to all those things. But you never committed to me. You never surrendered to me. You never gave your heart to me. You believed that you needed to be good, but you never bowed before me and said, I'm a sinner. You never bowed your head before me and said, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me to take my sin away. You never bowed before me and said, Lord, I believe that you rose from the dead and through your resurrection, you promised me eternal life. You never said to me, I'm a lost sinner, and I need to be forgiven, and I need to be a child of God, and I need you to receive me through my faith. You never said that to me. You committed to a lot of good things, but you never committed to me. And Jesus, the judge, according to why I see in Scripture, is going to look that person in the eye and I believe he will look at them through his own tears and he will say you never gave me your life you committed to a lot of good things but you never gave me your heart you never gave me your life you never gave me the chance to commit to you as your savior You never gave me the chance to make a commitment to you because you never committed to me. That's what I see in Holy Scripture. Make sure, friends, just make sure personally that your commitment is not just outward, not just in morals not just in goodness, not just in attendance, not just in activity. Make sure you've surrendered your heart. That's what the Scripture says. You know, I am bound and determined to be a true preacher of the Word of God. I am bound and determined that I'm going to teach you the truth. And I'll tell you why. I do so out of respect of my God, and I do so out of fear of my God. I do not want to look my God in the face and He say to me, you stood in my pulpit and you watered down my truth. You stood in my pulpit and you compromised my truth. In eternity, I don't want to face God. God. And hear him tell me that. And what I'm saying to you is belief is not halfway. It is total surrender of our heart to Jesus. Amen? Total surrender to him. Pastor Clyde sent me, laid on my desk, a a quote. And it's laid there now for several months, but I knew it would come a moment, and here it is. A.W. Tozer, great pastor in America, a great author. His books are still in print. He died in 1963, but this is one of his quotes. We cannot afford to let down our Christian standards just to hold the interest of people who want to go to hell and still belong to church. Friends, there's no time to water down the Word of God. It comes to total surrender to Him. And everything we do, every moral act, every kind act, every service act, everything we do springs from our surrender to Him. So I'm just asking you, whether you're here in person, streaming with us in the parking lot, make sure everything you do is out of surrender to the Savior. Commit to Him. And he will then commit to us. That's his promise. If you've never committed to him, he's waiting on you this day to say yes to him. In true belief and true surrender. Nothing else can take its place. Not morality, not goodness, not being a good neighbor, not being faithful to your spouse. It truly is surrender to Jesus. And everything else springs from that. If you've never given your heart to him, the Bible says commit to him this moment, and he will commit to you for eternity. That's his promise. If you need him, you come. Don't put it off another day. Don't put it off another minute. Don't say I'm going to be a better Bible scholar. Don't say I'm going to come to church more. Don't say I'm going to do better until I can come to Jesus. No, come today. Make that commitment to him. He will commit to help you get where you need to be. Come today. If you're listening to this on podcast, somewhere down the road, come now, this moment. Driving a car along, pray the prayer with me. Don't shut your eyes, but pray the prayer with me. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God. This sermon, this scripture, hits me hard as a pastor, Lord. One of these days, I am going to stand before you. The Bible teaches me that one day I will give account to you and I want you, Lord, to say you, you, were, you were true to my word. You were true to the truth. It wasn't easy. Sometimes it stepped on a lot of toes, including your own. But thank you for staying true to my son. Lord, I simply want to surrender to you. I want to surrender this pulpit to you. I'm not completely perfect, certainly, Lord, but I want to surrender my life to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters that all of us will join together today and say, Lord, I'm making sure that I'm surrendered to you. Every good thing, every Christian service, every moral act comes because I've committed to you and you've committed to me. Bless us in that moment of rededication. Bless that one who needs Jesus as Lord and Savior. The moment that one, that boy or girl, that man or woman says, Yes, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. I am a sinner. I am sorry. I believe you died on the cross to take my place in punishment. I believe that you rose from the grave, that I might have eternal life. Yes, I believe it, Lord. I surrender to you. I commit to you. This moment, Jesus will commit to that one. Bless us now. It's a very, very important moment of decision, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.